imagine if God were all-powerful, wise, um, sovereign, and not gracious. Wow, that would be terrible. Uh, We would be still in our sin. We would be hopeless, helpless, lost. God is gracious and in some ways, the Christian life is becoming more and more aware of and convinced of just how amazing God's grace is. It, it's troubling if phrases are used so often that they lose their power, but amazing grace is what we're talking about with God. And we begin a series this morning for the summer, pausing in between First and Second Peter on habits of grace. grace. That's the the title of a book by David Mathis that we shamelessly stole and used as the title of our series this summer because we think in those two words, habits and grace, there is wonderful help. There's a lot packed into those two terms. So habits of grace. We are wanting to think this summer about how we grow. How do we grow as Christians, which is distinctly different from how we grow as just humans or as virtuous people or in character or in morality. There's something fundamentally distinct about growing as Christians that we need to realize, and that's my main job this morning. I'm setting the stage. I'm not talking about one of the habits of grace as we will for the rest of the summer. I'm trying to lay the foundation, frame the entire series with our time together this morning. And I want us to think about growing as Christians. We just got through 1 Peter, and there are so many important commands and understanding in there about how we uh, live out the Christian life. But if we don't pause and think, well, how does this actually kick in the gear in our lives? How do we do this? Because the reality is you can know a lot and not kick it in the gear in your life. You can have all sorts of information in your mind And when the results come back from the doctor and it says malignant, that doesn't necessarily give you hope in that moment. Your faith doesn't necessarily kick in the gear. The reality is we've all experienced it. There can be a disconnect. There can be a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we apparently actually believe when trials come or when good things happen or when... uh, hard things come our way, we really find out what's going on within the circumstances of life regarding our faith. And and there's nothing harder about the Christian life than coming to realize that, oh, I've got a disconnect going on. And I've experienced this many times in my life where where I, I teach theology for a living and I'm a pastor and a preacher and I can realize at different points in my life that there can be huge disconnect between what I can articulate very clearly for my students and flock, but often will not actually apply in my life very well. There can be an alarming disconnect, or there can be a beautiful display. 
there's been surprising faithfulness in my life. And over and over again in this church, there have been powerful displays of the reality, the authenticity of faith, of belief, of the fruit of true relationship with God. There can be beautiful demonstration of fruit of the Spirit where there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control that wasn't there even six months ago. There can be beautiful display or tragic disconnect. And and we want to know how we move from disconnect to display. We want to think about how you actually get there. Because we don't naturally get there. It actually is worked out in real life by by habits of grace. So let's define these two words. It's very important we get this definition on the table. What does it mean to say habits of grace? I hope you notice the inherent tension between those two words. Well, if it's grace, what's about habits? And if it's habits, what's about grace? And so there is a fundamental relationship and tension between these words. Habits. What are other words for habits? Routines, yes. What else? What is it? Practices, yes. Patterns, good, yeah. Disciplines. Things you do habitually, things you do as a matter of course. Actually, Jesus is described as someone who did things habitually. Did you know that? It says, and when he came to Nazareth, where he grew up, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. Oh, so in the life of Jesus, there are things that he did habitually. There, there were things that were patterns, that were their custom. It's just what he did. If you were in Nazareth on the Sabbath and you wondered where Jesus was, you could stop wondering. He'd be where he should be. He'd be at the synagogue where, where the people of God gather on the Sabbath. Jesus practiced things regularly. You can see patterns in Jesus' life. So these habits, that that may be a word that you don't like very much. Habits. What does that have to do with grace? Well, there's a vital combination here. In the Bible, we see over and over again things like work out your faith with fear and trembling. In other words, get about the business of working it out. And then you know what it says next? For it's God who's at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You want to say, well, which is it? And God says, yes. Yes, and, and there's, there's a, a spirit-dependent, grace-based way of living that actually has patterns, discipline associated with that enables us to grow in grace and get that grace even more. And so it's habits, it's spiritual disciplines. And I wanted to add practice with our bodies because it is the inner man, the the spiritual life we're cultivating with these disciplines. And it is a reality that, that often there can be great spiritual strength in the midst of great physical weakness. I spent half this past week in an ICU camping out in an ICU for, for half the week in Connecticut. And, and um, I was thinking about how frail we are, but how 
true it is that in the midst of great physical frailty, there can be great strength. Some of the most strong people I've ever known spiritually are very weak physically. So these are spiritual realities we're talking about. And in the midst of a world that is, is cursed and, and frail and falling apart, the second law of thermodynamics is true, right? It, we, we know we're not getting any energy back. It's just being expended. There's, there's a, a running down of things. We live in a, a hard and difficult, thorns and thistle-filled world. And, and so it is a spiritual reality. But I, I wanted to add, practiced with our bodies, because we can actually over-spiritualize spirituality. We can make it too mystical, too vague, too abstract, so we actually never can figure out if we're doing well or not. Or not. Right? So we... We do this with our bodies. I have a friend who's battled severe depression for eight years, and he says, oh, Eric, I so seldom feel like doing what I know is right and what I know will bring me to life. And I said, oh, brother, isn't it good then that even though you don't feel like it, you still can actually control your body and go to your shelf and take off your Bible and use your hands and open it up and use your eyes and your mind and read it. Let's just start with your body then. And ask God for your heart and your soul to follow what you actually can do. I said to him, your kids need a dad who smiles at them. You can actually smile when you don't feel like it. You can do those things. You can start there. Oh, not as the end. We're never satisfied with a mere physical life, but, but we realize that God made us as body and soul. He made us to grow spiritually embodied, and the resurrection points us to the fact that for all of eternity, we'll have bodies and souls and join God for all of eternity. And so we do this in our bodies. We do this in real life as embodied creatures and it's rooted in the local church. I don't want us to miss that. We decided to not even give an independent week to the local church as a spiritual discipline because it's the context, the primary context of all the disciplines, all the habits that we pursue. And to give it its own week could miss that point. And we're also uh, wanting to realize that, that we as individuals are collectively pursuing these habits of grace at the same time, together, in unity. And so, so we pursue these together. But these habits, these things we do as patterns in our lives are grounded in grace. And we realize that our growth in godliness, even the initiative, the, the initial desire to grow it all, is gift. Left to myself, apart from God's gracious enabling, I would want nothing to do with God. If you feel a tugging toward God, thank God. You didn't conjure that up. God's at work. He's at work in you, drawing you to himself, showing you your need for him. Thank God for a desire for God. And and so growth in godliness is a gift of God through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit. I will conclude this series in August with a sermon on the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one we need. He's the one who Jesus said it's better if he goes so that the comforter, the Spirit, comes because that will give us a growth 
that we desperately need. The Spirit does that. And so, so this, it's habits then of grace, grounded in grace. And, and what's the goal of all of this? Here's the goal. Intimacy with and enjoyment of God, which bears fruit and glorifies Him, which is a working out of the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus in our place, grounds all of this. The grace of God in Christ grounds all of this. And the goal of these pursuits are God Himself. That's why this is so different than mere pursuit of virtue or character development or growth in morality. No, this, this is about God knowing Him, relating to Him, intimacy with Him, enjoying Him, satisfaction in Him, treasuring Him above all else. That's the goal. And the the anchor passage I want us to think about is found in the book we've just concluded preaching through in 1 Peter. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3? I want us to look together at one verse here because it must serve as the anchor for the summer. We've got to ground everything we do in this verse. 1 Peter 3, it's near the end of your Bible. If you get to the index, you've gone too far. If you get to uh, Hebrews, you've gone too far in the other direction. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 18. Listen to this wonderful passage. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ... Also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. So it's Christ centered, Christ founded. It's, it's about Jesus, and it's about Jesus' suffering. It's about Jesus' suffering in his entire life for us. It's about Jesus culminating that suffering in his death for us on a cross, and it's for our sins. And so we have a sin problem, and God cares for us in grace, taking care of that sin problem in Christ. Maybe you don't think you have a sin problem. God says you do. And he made you. He knows what you're made for, and he knows when you're not fulfilling what he made you for. And so God says we all have a great sin problem. The Bible says we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. It says that none of us, not one, lives up to the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not one. We've got a sin problem and we've got hell to pay and God in his grace saves us from that offers a solution to that great problem, and it's through Christ. It's through Christ's suffering for us. It's through Christ taking our place in his righteousness as well. So Jesus lives for us. Jesus dies for us. He suffers in our place once. He does it once. No need to do it again. There's a sufficiency, an accomplished work. In other words, when Jesus said it's finished as he dies on the cross... It really was. He dies once. No need to do it again. He, it is sufficient is his death. He dies, suffers once for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus, didn't need to die for his own sins. He needed to die for ours. And that's what he does. The righteous one for the unrighteous, that's all of us. 
So we have what we need more than anything else in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's Jesus in our place. That's God's grace expressed more clearly and powerfully and wisely than any other way. It's in Christ saving us. And so we can find the solution to our sin in Christ and we can find forgiveness. But that's not the goal, ultimately. Actually, that forgiveness, that righteousness in place of my unrighteousness, is actually a means to something greater. And what is that? It's right here in our verse. That, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the goal. See, intimacy with God, enjoyment of God, which bears fruit and glorifies him, which is the working out of our faith with fear and trembling, the gospel being worked out in our lives. It's about God. It's about actually accomplishing what the goal of our life is. Your life is fundamentally about knowing God. Old Testament says, don't boast about wisdom or riches or power. No, the only thing, relatively speaking, that really matters is that you know God. That's what you were created for, for far more than anything else, to know God, to have intimacy with him, to enjoy him, to rest in the Sabbath shalom he provides. That's what you're for. That's why you exist. You may have filled your life with so many things, that that doesn't even sound attractive to you. You may have sought satisfaction in so many things, and maybe your biggest problem is those things are actually feeling pretty satisfying. I'd much rather preach the gospel to a man on death row than a man on Wall Street. I just think one senses his need more. And so, so life has a way of, of awakening in us our need for more than just the toys of this world, the idols of this world, that if even gifts from God are treated as ends in themselves, we're tra- living tragically. And so we ground our pursuit of growth in the gospel. If we don't do that, we are tragically misguided. If we disconnect habits of grace from the grace of God for us in Christ and in an ongoing way out of that good news in Christ, then this is a dangerous series. This series can be dangerous if we disconnect it from the gospel. This series can be no different than every other religion in the world then. See, every other religion in the world is about what we do to get to God. No, the Christian faith is so radically different from that. It's about what God has done to draw us to himself, to reestablish relationship with us. It's God's work on our behalf, not our work for God. That's the foundation of what we do and who we are. We've got to connect it to that. You know, Muhammad Ali died uh, last week, and his memorial service was yesterday, and somebody alerted me, Zach Underwood alerted me to something his wife said, and I went and listened to her, her words at his funeral, and 
It's just bizarre for Muhammad Ali to die. He's sort of been one of these pop cultural backdrop icons throughout my life. It was the same way when Michael Jackson died. What? Was there life before Thriller? I, I, I mean, just, I barely remember. And, 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 and so it, these, these individuals will frame your perceptions. And, and now he dies. And he did a lot of good things, I'm told. And he was a philanthropist and a humanitarian and sought to bring people together. But his wife said something yesterday at his memorial service that was supposed to be inspiring and encouraging. And when I heard her say it, I felt like somebody punched me in the stomach as hard as they could, and and it took the wind out of me. Here's what she said. She said, Muhammad was always concerned about his salvation. And he would wake up every morning and say, I, I just want to get the quote right. He would wake up every morning and say, Thinking about his own salvation, he would say, I just want to get to heaven. And I have a lot of good deeds still to do to get there. Now that was supposed to be motivating to people. And and in the way we think as humans, it can actually feel motivating. But if you get the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you get the Christian way of thinking about getting to heaven, that's about the worst way to think. As if you're just collecting more and more good stuff that you do and hopefully that's going to outweigh the bad stuff you do and and, and the scales will tip in your favor someday And, and even with Parkinson's, even with all the good things he's done, he's still got more to do. I'm so burdened for that man and thinking of his life that way. That is not motivating to me as a Christian. What could be more crushing the needing to amass more self-righteousness when the fact is I could never amass enough for a holy God. What could be more discouraging and defeating thinking I've got as many days left as I've got and I've got to do the most I possibly can to earn favor with God. If we pursue habits of grace that way, that's horrible. That, that's completely missing the point. That's completely going down the wrong road. And do you know there's something in me that likes that way? I like being told, do these five things and you're good. All right. Can you give me more details? Because I like details. So how much? How much do I give? How, how much do I serve? How, how much do I have to give away until I'm good? Could you give me more facts and details and, and parameters on this? Because I'm liking this. This is clear, and and this actually makes me feel pretty good about my own effort and my own ability to do this. That's not the Christian way. The Christian way is amazing grace. Grace that staggers you. Grace that starts when you get to the end of yourself and you wave the white flag at your own self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. Oh, but the crazy thing that even though we can be Christians for a long time, we can know that, but then get on with acting like it's not true. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. But let's not think then we don't get on with seeking to understand that grace better and live it out more. 
See, it's habits of grace. And as we are satisfied in God and know him better, we understand his grace even more. And it doesn't fuel a legalistic, burdensome life. It fuels a freedom and a joy and a resting in that God. Even as you work out your faith with fear and trembling. And so we've got to get this combination right and got to keep the goal before us. And look at the result here in our verse. He brings us to God. That's the point. Don't miss the point. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's what's happening here. It's it's not just some, some historical, factual thing, although it's all of that. It's a very personal, very real, very relational, new life in Christ. When we baptize people behind the forest here, there's a baptismal right there, right there. Trust me, if you've never seen it, it's right there. We baptize people there, and when we do, we all say the same thing, that when we're baptized, we're buried with him in baptism, identified with his death by faith. Union with him. Now his death is in our place. It's as if it's our death. And then what happens? And we're raised to walk in newness of life. It's not just, oh wow, my sins are forgiven. That's great. No. You see how that's the beginning in so many ways? We're raised to walk in newness of life. We now are no longer slaves to sin and captured by the powers of darkness. We're freed. We are brought out of the kingdom of darkness into his glorious, marvelous light. So there's a new life we live now. There's there's a, a newness of this life that we live. Our lives are different now, and it's now Christ is our life, and and God is our pursuit, so no matter what the circumstances, no matter what's happening in our lives, we can live resting in God, joyful in God, hoping in God. I need to tell you, as I look out in this congregation, I know so many of you, and the suffering you've endured, and the trials that have come your way, and the sin that you battle on a daily basis, and the conflicts, and the trials, and the challenges, and I have seen your faith. I've seen the goodness of God embraced in your life, so you walk in faith, not by sight even when you don't know how it's all going to turn out. And when we turn on the news or open the paper and see that the greatest terrorist attack our nation has seen in this way uh, with a gunman killing over 50 people last night in a bar in Orlando and, and more than that injured, where do we find grounding, hope, peace, See, we don't do these things so we can sit on a mountaintop like some guru at peace with ourselves. No, we do these things so we can actually move into real life with hope, with meaning, with faith, with joy. This is as real as it can be. People have this idea that when you come to church, you leave reality, and then you go back out in the real world. This is as real as it gets. This is reality here. What you see on TV is not reality most of the time until you face up to the fact that God created it all for his own glory and we've got a sin problem. And until you deal with that problem in Christ, you're not dealing with reality. 
And, and we, we've got to be people who focus on reality. And we think we can make our own reality up. And, and my reality is reality. No, God's reality is reality. And so we've got to align ourselves with our creator in the way he sees things. And so, so we've got to be people growing in grace, grounded in the gospel, seeking intimacy with God. And our lives will be different. We'll, we'll just be very different people. And we need to do it abiding in Christ. He says in John 15 that he is the vine, we are the branches. We can do nothing apart from him. Nothing. Nothing. But if we are abiding in him, resting in him, dwelling in him, depending on him, we'll bear much fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of joy and faithfulness and multiplication of, of what God done in us and, and in other people's lives. He will, he will do a good work in us. Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. And so we are called to holistic, consistent growth throughout our lives. Just like Jesus, who we are told grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. Yes, he was eternally the son of God, fully divine. But Jesus was really human and for us shows us what humanity as it's intended to be looks like. And we follow in his steps. And he grew as a human holistically, consistently throughout his life as was his custom. He went to the synagogue. So Jesus is our pattern in this. And, and you can look at Jesus' religious life and it's amazing. Yes, Christianity, my friends, is a religion. I know the cliche. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. No, it is. Let's just shoot straight. It's a religion. You need to do things religiously to maintain good relationship, whether that's with your wife or your teeth. I want to have a good relationship with both of those. So we go on dates and I floss every day. You do things regularly to maintain relationship. Let's not overly spiritualize and overly mysticize this whole thing. It, it's actually worked out in real life with real patterns in our lives. And so Jesus gives us the pattern for growth in godliness. If you look at his life, it's just amazing. You just read through the gospel how, how religious he was. His prayer life was, was a pattern in his life. His gathering with God's people was a pattern in his life. His spirit-empowered, spirit-led, spirit-enabled joy was a pattern in his life. The scriptures, the devotion to them, the, the memorization, meditation, reading, studying of the scriptures, so they flowed from his pores, and every time he opened his mouth, it was the Bible coming out. The Bible was core to his life. He starts his ministry with his baptism to, because it had to be done uh, the right way. Jesus is our model for these things. Jesus is our pattern in all these things. He is our example as well as our sufficiency. So what are the things? We, we got together as leaders and we said, what are the things that you just biblically need to be doing? There are some things that are great to do that should be encouraged like journaling. But you don't have to. There are some things you have to. There are some things that if you don't do them, you won't grow. And there are some things that if you do them, you will. And if you don't, let's call the whole thing off. Because this is how God has said we grow. And what are those things then? 
Here they are. We, we think they're not. There may be more. Love to hear your opinions about that. But, but here they are. The Word. We've got to be men and women of the Word. Randy will start focusing on one discipline at a time next week when he talks about the Word, the centrality of the Word in our lives. We are people of the Scriptures. Christians have been called people of the book. We believe God has spoken, and we have His Word in this Word. And so we... Uh, Pay attention to it. We read it publicly here at Grace. We saturate our sung corporate worship time with it. We uh, focus on the preaching of the word and not just interesting, funny ideas in our preaching. We, we, we encourage the members of our church to, in, in our membership commitment, we, we have a devotion to feeding our souls through the scriptures. And so we're people of the word. We uh, follow Jesus' pattern in overcoming temptation according to the scriptures. Who He says to Satan, when Satan's tempting him to sin, it is written. Boom! Mic drop. Jesus on the Mount of Temptation. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus fought temptation with scripture. We need to as well. And prayer As we said, Jesus' life had a pattern of prayer and prayerfulness, and our lives do as well. Now, as we start to go through these, I hope you're already saying, oh my, these all must work together, right? Because if I don't go to the word prayerfully, if the word doesn't actually teach me how to pray, right? And and this is true, all of these need to work interdependently together. Everyone needs to be considered in light of all the others, okay? Uh, Prayer, we need to have lives of worship. If we don't express affection, adoration, exalting in God, then we're missing the whole point, right? Because it's about intimacy, intimacy with him and adoring him and worshiping him and glorifying him because of our relationship with him. We give, we we kill uh, idolatry by giving of our resources. Giving is a primary way we grow. We tend not to think of it that way. We tend to think, well, giving is a way I express my faith. No, giving is also a way you, you, you uh, build your faith. You exercise your faith when you give. And self-sacrificial giving deepens faith and, and serving one another. Oh, this Adventure Week is going to be a massive display of of hundreds serving our community and our families and our kids for the sake of the gospel. There will be hard service, and it goes on every day. People bringing meals and caring for one another in, in daily practical ways. And so we serve so that we grow, not just because we have grown, so that we will. Again, putting our faith in the gear, serving in a self-sacrificial way of time and energy and, and emotions and we serve each other. And we proclaim. This often is not thought of as an important way we grow, but it is. When you, I could talk to you for about a half an hour easily about the goodness of Worcester Street New Haven pizza. I could. I just had one, one and a half last week. <laughs> When I was in Connecticut, and, and I did, and I could talk to you about why it's the best pizza on the planet. And when I was done, even before I'm done, two minutes into it, you would want some Sally's pizza. You would. And you know what would happen to me? My mouth would water. And I would grow in my appreciation as I described it to you. Sought to persuade you to the goodness 
And that's what proclamation does. It awakens in us, us a deeper appreciation as we speak well of Jesus to people who we want to understand how good he is. And fellowship. Oh, this is all worked out in fellowship. It's, it, this, the local church, the primary context of that fellowship, but all these things work together as we work this out as God intended, not as individuals, but as a body, as a family, as Randy said today. And suffering, oh, suffering is one of the ways God wants us to grow most in this life. And now you'll suffer no matter what, but you have a choice in how you suffer. Will you avoid suffering at all costs? Or when suffering comes your way, will you move toward it in a way that is teachable? And says, I want to know Christ and share in his sufferings. And will you even be so amazingly encouraged by God's grace that you move toward the suffering in other people's lives. You bear one another's burdens. You weep with those who weep. You make their suffering as it were your own. Suffering is a great way to grow. And, and, and finally, missions. I've never met a really godly Christian who didn't care about the nations, whose concern for God's glory gets well beyond me and us to them to reach the nations. And so all these vital aspects of growing in our habits of grace need to be considered. But let me make some concluding points. Eight to be exact. You ready? Yeah. So about another hour we'll be done. No. Just kidding. Here we go. You ready? One. What's true of these habits of grace? As I said, they all work interdependently. You can't consider one without all of the others. Two, see, I told you. Two, these things, these habits of grace, mostly look normal and mundane, undramatic. Now, they're the working out of very dramatic realities of relationship with our Creator and advancing the gospel and His kingdom's advance in this world, but that looks mostly like setting your alarm clock a little bit earlier so you have some more time to read your Bible before you rush off to work. And then it means going to bed earlier than you would have because you want to be fresh when you do that. It means getting up and going to work, asking God for joy and submissiveness to a boss you just have a really hard time with. It looks like changing diapers to the glory of God. Sitting in traffic with joy. Yeah, it does. See, this is mostly worked out in the mundane. You know when Jesus went back to Nazareth, his hometown, what they said? Who is this guy talking with this sort of power and authority? We know his brothers and sisters. We watched this kid grow up. And it says they took offense at him. His life looked so normal. They just weren't ready for his godliness. What do you mean by the radical Christian life? Don't make it more radical than Jesus' life which looked pretty normal mostly, who had nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. No stately former majesty. He wasn't about the externals. He was about the things of the heart, relationship with God and obedience to him and loving God and others and fulfilling everything God intends for us to be in that. It looks mostly normal. And we need to let God decide what it looks like. I taught a class called 
spiritual disciplines when I was teaching at Wheaton College. And one of the things I did back in the 90s when I was doing that was take an overhead transparency. You remember those? And I, I handed them out to all the students and I said, graph your spiritual life with the starting point in this corner, starting point in this corner, and being just like Jesus in this corner. And on our way there, show us how it's gone. And it was amazing to see how different everybody's graphs looked. Some were just these boom, 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 plodding along toward Jesus. Yeah, it's just, boom. I just made that song up. We'll th- write that down. We'll, um, it's actually not a real song, believe it or not. Uh, yeah, just plodding along. Other people were plodding along and then, bow! And then they plod along again. Or, bow, bow! And then plod. And, and, and some people were like EKGs, right? ups and downs and peaks and valleys and it was wonderful to say whoa god works very differently in different lives i need to just be good with that and not look at his graph and say i want his graph my graph is boring or i want his graph his graph is boring right Uh, uh, we can be tempted in either direction right but what we need to let that to God, and there was one couple, married couple in the class, and their graph plotted along, and then both, their graphs at the same time went bow. And we all said, whoa, we need to know what happened there. I want that. And they said, oh, that's when our nine-year-old daughter died of leukemia. And we thought, hmm, do I want that? See, what is this all about, really? So we need to realize it's worked out in the mundane and, yeah, in the cancer wards, but but mostly at the kitchen table. It's worked out in all the circumstances of life, and so it, it looks really normal most of the time, much of the time. What else? These habits of grace take discipline. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the hardest thing about the Christian life is it's so daily (laughs) it's not a pilgrimage to mecca or an ascent of a mountaintop experience it's so daily and it takes discipline on a daily basis to do this and we need one another's help in this these habits of grace number four as we've said are all worked out in the context of the local church spur one another on to love and good deeds grow in grace in other words And therefore, don't stop meeting together as some are doing. Because judgment day is coming. It's all worked out in the local church. Number five, they're all spirit-empowered. I will do an entire sermon to end the series on the power of the spirit that is necessary to grow in grace. Apart from his work, nothing of lasting value happens. Number six, habits of grace kill sin. There's a fundamental reality that as we grow in grace, as we grow to be like Jesus, we will sin less. Now there's a difficulty here because the more godly you become, the more aware of your sin you will feel and experience and so you'll feel like you're going backwards when in actuality you're growing. The awareness of sin is a great grace and a sign of growth. So if you feel the weight of the conviction of sin, rejoice that the Spirit's at work in your life. So we, we seek His work. He does this. And, and we kill sin. 
Galatians says, but I, but, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's a very clear increasing disdain for sin and love for righteousness that flows from this. Oh, I want more of that, don't you? I want to get to the point, as I have with other sin in my life, where not only am I not tempted anymore, I hate it. I think, why in the world was that appealing to me? When God's really right when he says it leads to death. Seven, habits of grace express and enable enjoyment of God. First Peter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's what we're talking about. If indeed you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that is the goal of all this. We as Christians are those who've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and turned from our sin and to Christ. And now our lives are tasting more and more. So this summer is an invitation to a banquet. It's a banquet feasting on God. That's what the Lord's Supper is an image of, is it not? Feasting on him. How does all this end with a big old wedding banquet? Not with just the hokey pokey, but with God himself. God at the center of everything. God, our greatest joy. God, our greatest pleasure. Feasting on him forevermore. That's the goal of it. And our lives now can be a foretaste of that day, of that banquet. So this is a big invitation to a wonderful feast in God, to feast on God, to know him grounded in grace, pursuing daily, normal, routine-looking realities so that we know our creator better and understand his amazing grace toward us in Christ. Help us, Lord. We fill our lives with so many vain things. What we need is eternal things to fill our lives, things that matter most and last forever. Help us to pursue the simple, mundane, normal-looking means of grace in our lives so that we do grow in our intimacy with you, our fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that when this comes in its fullness in eternity, We've already been doing it ahead of time. And we thank you for doing this work for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.